Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD podcast. Hi there, and welcome to the next edition of the NPRD. It is spring in the Northeast. We're so happy that it is. And we have a wonderful guest today with Jordan and myself, Dr. Judith Feldman, who is going to share with us some of her career journey as it relates to treating eating disorder patients. Judy, you're a psychiatrist and have have been in the field for a while. So thank Correct. you. Thank you for coming thank on you. today. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. It's 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 going to be fun. I have actually been in practice since the ninth, early 1970s. Awesome. Um, I graduated from medical school with a total of about maybe six weeks or three months of psychiatry training. Then uh, began uh, post graduate training, which means three years of residency, and I actually took a year part-time of child psychiatry fellowship. During that time, I don't think anybody mentioned eating disorders at all, either in medical school or in residency. Now, this was a long time ago, and the only book that had been written on eating disorders at that point was by Hilda Brook, and she was a psychoanalyst, and she wrote about it from a psychoanalytic point of view, but it's still a very useful book to read um, and very interesting. Um, And really, my first introduction to treating eating disorders was when I had a small private practice after my training. I started working at Harvard Community Health Plan, and then I saw some private patients in my home. And I had the fortune, the good fortune, actually, to be referred to young women, one with bulimia and the other one with anorexia. And I had no idea what either one of them was. So I started learning from my patients and Mm. doing some reading and going to some continuing education and going to some conferences. And people were really just beginning to talk about these disorders and to try to figure out how to be how to be helpful to patients with them. Um, So that when I then came on full time at Harvard Community Health Plan, which is now Atreus Health. Right. But back then was a small pioneering health maintenance organization. Um, I was very lucky to get in on the ground floor and to basically help build our own program. And as part of that program, um, a psychiatric nurse and I collaborated to design and run a short-term group for people with normal weight bulimia. And we also began to develop guidelines for the treatment of anorexia and bulimia within our system trying to look at indications for hospitalization, for partial hospitalization, um, et cetera. And it, it was a way of gathering my knowledge as I was trying to teach other people um, and help other people really think through the coordinated treatment, which then became more collaborative and started including psychiatry, uh, other mental health clinicians, nutrition, primary care, um, and that's when we began to really think about team treatment and collaborative treatment. 
You said two things. I just wanted to go back to the, one of the things you said about learning from your patients, because sure. I feel like I learn from my patients all the time. So I wondered how much, even in present day, that comes into your work. Absolutely. Um, even, even if you've had decades of experience, no one patient is like any other patient. Mm. And there are always new wrinkles, new ideas, new forms of, of addressing problems. Um, and listening to what patients tell you about what they're going through is one of the most valuable ways to, to learn more about what you're doing. Completely enthralled by your journey and how yeah. pioneering you are. Well, I was. it was a very interesting time. No, it was a time in which psychiatry went from you know, almost completely psychoanalytic and sort of public um, mental health and state hospital treatment to what we now know as modern psychiatry. Um, and I was very lucky to get in on the ground floor of it, um, particularly the issue of medication. When I first started my residency of lithium, for instance, this is not about eating disorders, but Lithium, which is now a mainstream treatment of bipolar disorder, was very new, and people felt it was so dangerous that you had to put somebody in the hospital in order to start them on yeah. lithium. And now I use lithium in baby doses to help folks who really have some suffering around hopelessness as an adjunct medication. Exactly. Um, and it's still it's yeah. sometimes still kind of a hard sell because of the the stigma towards lithium still is so prominent. But mm -hmm. some of my patients, even who just use 150 milligrams, which is like, you know, so scant, they feel so much better. It's like mm -hmm. night and day. It's also very protective against suicide. Yeah. There are a number of studies yeah. on that. Yeah. 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 So that's just an example of how psychiatry and mental health treatment have changed over the decades that I've been involved in doing it. Um, so after Harvard Health Plan, um, which I left when it started getting pretty big and pretty corporate, um, I, I worked for a couple of years on the women's inpatient um, unit at uh, Arbor HRI Hospital, uh, which was a unit treating trauma survivors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And trauma survivors often have eating disorders. And patients with eating disorders often have histories of trauma. Mm-hmm. So I ended up seeing the, the more ill people, uh, both with their eating disorders and with their trauma histories. And it was a very stressful job, um, but I learned a tremendous amount um, that, that was very, very helpful um, in, in subsequent work. And along, along the course of my journey, I've taken various courses in various forms of psychotherapy, um, which have been very useful in treating eating disorders. And one of them is dialectical behavior therapy, and the other one is internal family systems therapy. Um, and both of these I have really brought to bear in my psychotherapy um, with patients with eating disorders. So I want to speak to that a couple of things. Your practice is, is very interesting not just because you have been a pioneer in the field of eating disorder, but also because you do therapy and prescribe medicine, not something that 
every psychiatrist does. So for patients, Jordan, to see Judy for both yep. of these things is such, such a huge gift. DBT. So Jordan, remember we had Sarah Logan a yes. while back and yes. she's the therapist that you may have crossed paths with, Judy, I'm not sure. But, yes. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So Sarah spoke to some of the DBT. So just that you were, you know, you've been doing these things because I'm taking over some of Judy's patients, mm-hmm. Jordan, because mm-hmm. she's retiring. These amazing people who clearly, like the work that you've done, it's awesome. So I'd love to have you keep speaking to some of the DBT and and, um, family systems or whatever you want, really. No, I I can certainly do that. I want to say also, though, in terms of medication management, as I've gotten into private practice, I've done both. I've had both kinds of roles um, with patients. One is as a therapist and psychopharmacologist. And the other, is to, which is very rewarding, is to be on a team where someone else is doing the psychotherapy and I'm doing the psychopharmacology. But one of the things I'm thinking about, and I've thought about for years and I just haven't pulled the trigger, is to become a SANE trained NP, which is sexual assault nurse training program with the state. Because the crossover, just I was, I was just saying that out loud for folks to hear because I totally agree with you. And trauma can be lots of different things for different people, you know, not just sexual trauma. But I, I just wanted to say how much I agree with you on that. My question is really more of an overview for you to assess. And you've been doing this for so long. Not that you're an old person by any stretch, but you've been doing well, this yeah, successfully yeah. since the 70s. And I've been around since then, too. Um, the question is, uh, people are still in, in the throes of illness and they think hopeless thoughts because that's part of the illness no matter what mm-hmm. whether it's related to just eating disorders or depression or any mental condition the scale of success because of all the new systems and because of the great advancements in pharmacology what do you say to people who have that sense of hopelessness now as opposed to say even 15 years ago great question it's a very good question and in part I think it, it is a little bit discouraging with eating disorders in the sense that it is still such a difficult, you know, often lifelong illness um, that for some, some people we've really been able to help, especially if they get treatment early and they get treatment in adolescence and their family gets treatment and they restore weight quickly, um, the people really do much better than they did in the past. Um, but I think we've got a ways to go. And one of the exciting developments um, has to do with physiology, neurophysiology, and neuroendocrine systems, mm. where there's much more understanding now about the role of the brain and the gut and the pancreas mm. and all of the systems in between them in terms of hunger, satiety, set point weight, and all kinds of issues which turn out to be physiologically and genetically um, very, very set. Um, And I think we're going to develop new ways medically to try to manage some of these systems and get them back on track so people aren't plagued, you know, with difficulties trying to figure out their hunger and their fullness and, and, you know, maintain a healthy weight. And I think that's coming. It's not there yet. I mean, I don't want anybody to listen to this podcast and say, oh, good, you know, I have, a, I have a drug to take. No. But I think there's so much more understanding now about 
the the way the brain works um, in terms of eating. Uh, that uh, that I think there's a lot of hope for the future um, in making things even better. Most patients that I see, you know, and similar to you, you know, they're complex. They're complex histories. They've had their eating disorders for quite some time. That most patients do better and medicines succeed for them if there are combinations of things versus expecting one sort of magic bullet from one thing. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, that, that's, that's correct. There is, there is no drug to treat eating disorders, unfortunately. And the, the other unfortunate part is that particularly when patients are restricting or malnourished, the kinds of medications that are used to treat depression and anxiety often don't work as well because they're dependent in certain ways on somebody's nutritional status. Right. Um, so that, that, that's an example of how you may need combinations of medication and also combinations of different inputs, different uh, nutrition and psychotherapeutic inputs to help somebody help their medication work better. It's three things, right? It's the psychotherapy, right. the nourishment, and the medicine. Correct. Sometimes Correct. when I'm seeing a new person for medicine who's like never been on medicine or has been on a couple of things and, and the, maybe the medicines have felt like they've failed, I explain those three pieces. But also when we treat high blood pressure, we usually use at least two to three medicines. And I feel mm-hmm. like the brain is similar that a lot of the things we're trying to get to are different places in the brain with different medicines versus, you know, thinking of that one particular thing. Right. And, and I think often what you're doing with medicine is you're trying to facilitate the psychotherapy and the nutrition. Absolutely. So, for instance, yeah. if somebody is so depressed that they're hopeless, then they need an antidepressant to help them to have the energy to do the therapy work. If somebody's stomach is stuck and they can't process food, they may need help with gastric emptying and they need medication for that. If somebody is so revved up at night that they can't sleep, they may need a medication for that. So it's sort of like creating an internal environment, a, a, a sort of chemical and physiological environment in which a patient can calm down and do the work. If somebody, for instance, can't pay attention, uh, can't attend to what they're doing or what their behaviors are, they may need a stimulant to help them concentrate enough that they can delay their binge, for instance. Right. So, you know, I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. And also, people, especially people who are malnourished with eating disorders, have more side effects. So often you do need smaller doses of many medications. Yeah. The goal is always the fewest medicines at the lowest doses. So we're not, you know, we're not seen as this sort of polypharmacy environment. But mm-hmm. much of the time, we have to take this big picture and look at what is the nourishment like or not like? What is sleep like or not like? Is there hopelessness or not? What's the trauma history? Have there been any concussions? This huge big picture and talk to other providers as well on the team to determine what's the best kind of, you use the word environment. Sometimes I use the word, like I, sometimes I use it like we're putting a puzzle together to try to fix, mm-hmm. you know, kind of get to what somebody really needs. 
What I'm wondering is if there are any, you know, maybe one or two pearls, Judy, or anything you might want to share for now, because I love to have you back because there's so much to talk about. And this Mm -hmm. is just like the sprinkle on the the whole cake. Sure. I mean, I know you wanted me to also talk a little bit about principles of treatment. And I think that fits in really nicely with what we just talked about. So so let, let me spend a few minutes on that. Perfect. You know, I don't usually think too much about what are my three principles of treatment, but I realized what they are. They're honesty, honesty, flexibility, and collaboration. Mm. And let me just say a little bit about each one. By honesty, what I mean is not necessarily telling a patient everything that's on my mind, but not telling them anything that isn't true, and also being very honest about myself and what I can do and what I can't do. Um, For instance, I was once referred a a young college student who was terribly malnourished, and she and her father did not want me to speak with her primary care doctor. They were firm on that. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't treat you without without talking to your primary care doctor. So that and and there are other there were other situations in which I I would have to say to a patient, you know, I I understand your idea about what you want, but I can't go along with it. Mm. It just it, it. It doesn't feel medically safe to me. So that's honesty. Flexibility really has to do with listening to a patient. And if they want to go about something slightly differently and it feels like it's not going to hurt and it might help, um, I'm certainly willing to do that. There are people that there's one of my patients who wanted to be seen for an hour and a half instead of 45 minutes. And that's turned out to work extremely well, but it's nothing I had ever done before. Mm -hmm. So I I think listening to what a patient wants and what a patient needs, um, figuring out what you could do flexibly uh, that would be more helpful. I have some, a couple of situations where I, I see both members of a couple for medication, and I see the two of them together for couples therapy. Mm. Again, not the usual way of working, right? But it works for them, right? Um, and then collaboration is really collaborating not just with other clinicians um, of different disciplines, but collaborating with the patient, especially when you're doing medication. Mm. Um, that this is not doctor knows best. This is what you have to take. I'm sorry, you're having side effects keep on it. Absolutely not. (laughs) Let's decide together what makes sense. Here's my recommendation. What do you think? Why don't you read about it? Come back and talk to me next week. Let's start on a small dose. Email me in a couple of days. Let me know how you're doing. Tell me about the side effects. So it's that kind of collaboration um, that that is just sort of should be the bedrock of, of any psychopharmacology. I love how you use that word because even when I'm doing 15 minute discovery calls with patients to see if it's a good fit, mm-hmm. how I explain the end of the session, you know, the last 15 minutes of the initial session, which is an hour to 75 minutes long is that's when we talk and discuss what could be options. It's not me telling mm-hmm. you, it's us thinking together based on mm-hmm. everything what we could do. And then, you know, you go away and talk about it and think about it with your loved ones, other caregivers, your therapist, because very often I'm brought in after they have a therapist whom they've seen for a very long time. And therefore, I think along the lines of that collaboration, the patient 
clinician relationship has more trust because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a platform of learning. It's not, you know, clinician knows best. Mm. I would like to ask this to both of you because I respect both of you. The importance of empathy, at least felt by the patient at the initial session, everyone's different. Everyone's a unique individual on the planet, but I found that empathy is so important in the work I do, and I'm not a clinician. Talk a little bit about that, Robin, and then we'll hear from uh, Judy and her point of view on that. I feel like empathy and kindness are kind of the mainstays. Like being an empathic clinician, hearing, seeing, and understanding different pieces in a human, a person's life, and also being kind in that process is huge. Having the listening ears because... So, so I think empathy is the listening and the kindness, and then the mainstays that Judy brought up, the honesty, flexibility, right. and collaboration, because we're working with folks who've really suffered and very much a lot of the time haven't been heard or yeah. seen. Yeah. Perfect. And I, yeah. Judy, I'd love you to respond as well. And I guess the other part of this is as a professional, you still have to have some separation from the, the situation. Otherwise, you're swept up in everyone's story. I know that. But right. Of Share course, of course. Um, so empathy really means not just kindness, but it means putting yourself in the other person's shoes mm-hmm. briefly and trying to understand where they're coming from. And often when somebody comes in with an eating disorder, they are really stuck in a difficult place. And it, they may look stubborn or uncooperative or uh, not collaborative. And when you put yourself in their position and realize how it must feel to be so terrified of food Mm. that you can't put a bite in your mouth, then you sort of take a step back and you say, tell me about that, as opposed to, but you have to eat. And I think this is where internal family systems theory comes in and is just incredibly useful. And I, you know, I know we don't have time to really talk about it at length, but it basically talks about people having many different parts and everybody having different parts. This isn't a multiple personality disorder. It's just, you know, there's a part of me that feels this way and a part of me that feels this way. And so if you can think about some of the extreme feelings and ideas that patients have as this is a part of them. There's a part of them that is absolutely stubbornly refusing to eat. And then with internal family systems, you can say, well, tell me about that part. How do you feel toward that part? What does that part have to say for itself? What, what, what's that part's job inside you? What's it doing? And what is it afraid would happen if it stopped doing that job? And then you're really allowing the patient to tell you what's going on inside him or herself. Um, And the empathy really comes from the patient also empathizing with his or her various parts. Right. And it takes away from any kind of judgment that either of you might be making because patients will have judgmental parts, just like you have judgmental parts. Um, and that can be an incredible tool in enhancing collaboration and empathy. 
Judy, when we have you back, which is going to be like in five seconds. No, I'm just kidding. But, but for our next, because I come into the studio so we get real clear recordings and it's just so much more fun. I would love to talk more about the uh, IFS because I think that right. it would be a great segue to next time. And so I, I cannot thank you enough. I am lucky enough to do some supervision with um, Judy, which I explained to Jordan means that, you know, you and I meet. I learn as much as I can from you, which will never, ever be enough. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kivit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate and review us and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out the NPRD.com. 